0: Hosea chapter 9. And while you're on your way there, before you look too hard at the text, because it's a difficult text, I want to talk to you a little bit about the context. Pastor Steve, uh, the other one, often tells us that it's dangerous to define a relationship based on a Polaroid of the relationship. It's it, the same idea is, you know, it's always dangerous to try and judge a movie by a screenshot. You don't get the whole story. And there's at least two really good reasons why you'd want to make sure of that. First of all, a, a moment in a relationship isn't the whole relationship. And second of all, things are usually more complicated than can be seen in a picture or, in, or a single image. That's definitely true of the book of Hosea. Now, remember that as we look at Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, which is what I'm going to be dealing with this morning, remember that this is the ninth chapter of the book. So there's another eight chapters before this, there's going to be another five chapters after this, and so this stands in a context. Remember what we talked about when it came to Hosea. Hosea started off with a really powerful image about how God's relationship to Israel is kind of like a righteous man and his very, very unfaithful wife. He loves her. He desires her above all others. And yet, she runs from him. Worse than that, she betrays him serially. Over and over and over again she betrays him. And yet he loves her and he desires to be with her and yet there is something of justice that that calls out for some kind of difference here. A relationship can't continue in a situation where one side is always loving and forgiving and the other side never changes. Ever. It's going to be bad. The the book of Hosea and most of the prophets are setting up a kind of tension here. Uh, We usually get one side of the tension fairly easily that God loves us. And that's true. We need to be clear about that and keep it in your mind. God loves his people. The second side. Of the tension, it's less popular. You see, we live in a culture that's okay with, with inclusion and acceptance and all those kinds of things, but has a bit of a problem when it comes to judgment applied to ourselves, when it comes to justice applied to ourselves. We're fine applying judgment and justice to other people. Let's be clear when we see other people doing things we don't like, we say, oh, there ought to be a law. Or, you know, oh, isn't that terrible? Or those horrible people over there, without ever stopping to think that there's somebody somewhere thinking those horrible people over there about us. We don't like to talk about justice mainly because justice isn't a positive thing. And yet, that's what we see in the prophets. You see, the prophets lived in a time similar to the one we live in, one where everybody believes that they know God and God is fine with everything they're doing. And yet, in a real sense, they're actually walking away from God. They're in rebellion to God, And so the prophets set up this kind of tension. There's a God who loves us implicitly, and yet he is just. And if justice is to be met, people who rebel against God, who oppose God, who who work against his love, well, things won't end well for them. There is a just God who loves a corrupt and evil people. And this is setting up a bit of a tension that honestly isn't fully dealt with in the prophets. This is one of the reasons why we're Christians, because we know the gift of God in Jesus Christ, who sets up and, and solves this tension in the cross of Christ where the glory of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God and the love of God all meet together. But more about that later. Last time I spoke to you, I talked about uh, from Hosea chapter 8. And in Hosea 8, we talked about how people can have a view of God. They imagine that they're still believing the real God while they've subtly switched parts out of this God and created a new God that isn't the real one. You know how this works. Uh, People who read their Bibles and kinda ignore large chunks of it, usually the chunks that they have more trouble with. I personally do not like the parts about coveting because I rather enjoy coveting things. And so I'll ignore those parts about coveting. I'll pretend God's pretty much okay with them, with with that kind of thing. But those horrible people in that other chapter, Those horrible gossips. God has no time for gossips. All the time in the world for a person who covets, I mean, that's just a minor sin. We do this all the time. And if we go too far with this, if we try to change the ideas of who God is to fit our own desires and will, we end up worshiping a false god. That was last time. If you want to check it out, it's on the website. This week though, I want to deal with something a little closer to home. What I talked about last time was something that's outside of us, the false gods we create and worship. Today, I have to talk to you about sin and what its effects are on us personally. I'm going to have to talk about the word corruption how sin works in our lives, in our hearts, to corrupt us. This is not very uplifting, I'll admit, but it's important. Because I remember, the, remember many years ago when I was driving through Fredericton, I saw this massive billboard. It's told me that gluttony is a sin, but it's not illegal and told me to go buy this massive ice cream cake that would probably fatten me even more than I am now. But just think about that, how, mi- how much that minimizes the concept of sin. We as a people generally do that. We imagine that sin is something that we can play with, it's not a big deal. You know, yes, there is a such thing as sin, but it's not really that big a deal because after all, Jesus dealt with that, right? We don't need to worry about sin in our lives. We don't need to worry about the way that sin acts on ourselves, on our cultures, on our families, on our churches. We don't need to think about it. And then we read prophets like Hosea who has to tell us the totality of what it is. So, and lest you think that this is merely an Old Testament thing that wasn't around in, in Jesus' time, I'm going to point you to James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, just for a moment, because what I'm going to be preaching on today is pretty much encapsulated in, that, in these verses. James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Not uplifting. That's, the rest of James is better, but it's important that we see this. Because this is not something that's new to James. It's not something that he came up with. It's something you see throughout the entire warp and woof of Scripture. So the three points today from Hosea chapter 9 verses 1 to 9 are going to be that first of all, sin corrupts our desires. Second of all, sin corrupts our perceptions, our views of things around us. And finally, and most bluntly, sin kills. First of all, sin corrupts our desires. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Hosea 9. It says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine and that shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Notice especially the second part of verse 1. You have loved a prostitute's wages. There's a reason that Israel is going astray. There's a reason that they're doing the wrong things. It isn't because they want really badly to do the right thing and they can't. The problem is that their desires have been corrupted. The things that they want are leading them astray. They desire something that isn't God, and so they chase after it. The Bible teaches us that we are born into sin. That's a natural thing that, we came, that we're born with. Not quite natural. It's something that we are born with, though, ever since Adam. Adam. But it's important to recognize that being born in sin is more than saying that we are under the just condemnation of God. It means that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Independent of God's work in our lives, there is something fundamentally, and I I hate to use the word broken, but we are broken, but not in a way that's merely that we're victims because it corrupts us, it changes us, it moves us until we desire things that are less valuable instead of the thing that is ultimately valuable, namely God. We desire a prostitute's wages over the God of the universe. Sin has an addictive component. The more we embrace sin, The more we seek after sin, the more we'll want it. Because sin does something to our hearts. It separates us from God, and in not being able to see God, we begin to see other things that aren't as valuable, and in fact, in many cases, are actually evil as more valuable. And so we seek after those things instead of the God who created us. And as with most addictions and those of us who've dealt with either addictions ourselves or people who are dealing with addictions, it's a corrupting influence. A person who embraces their addiction to extreme measures ends up changing themselves you can remember the people you've seen you were from high school who you know were pretty good dudes and then they found out about cocaine and before long they're not very nice anymore that's a drug that's something we clearly see as problematic but i'm telling you that sin is like that for every one of us the sins that we embrace don't merely stay in the darkness where we embrace them they change us they make us see the sins as valuable before long the man who is racked with lust is seeking after the the computer harlots just so that it's the point that he avoids his scripture reading and avoids his family The person who is a gossip loves so much the knowledge of having this one little thing that they can tell other people and have over others. Even as it destroys their friendships and their relationships, it harms churches and separates people. But that one piece of juicy gossip was really valuable. The man who... Loves his video games more than his family. Will keep playing World of Warcraft until, as his family walks out the door. Because sin is addicting. It's corrupting. It changes us. And that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel in verses 1 to 3. They loved the prostitute's wages more than God. And get the tragedy of that because it is horrifically tragic. Unsurpassed joy is offered them in God. They are the people of God. They have the ability to talk to God face to face. (laughs) And they squander it for the sake of their own sin. And not even really good sins. It's not like it's something noble that we're talking about here. They just desired release. And they valued God more than that. Unless we think we're, we're all in nice suits here and you know we're, we're dressed kind of nice here at the church. It's a church. We all came to church on Sunday morning. Lest we imagine that it's only those horrible sinners out there. How often do we embrace sin like that? Do we play nice with the sins in our lives, pretending that our sin isn't as bad as the sin of the guy next to me? Well, at least I'm not that guy over there. And yet, God, with the fullness of joy, is offering himself to you, to us. And yet we embrace the sin as if it's valuable. Valuable. But it doesn't just corrupt our desires. Point two Sin corrupts our perceptions, the ways we see things, the ways we see things around us. It's possible that some of you have actually felt this in the last few moments. I know I did when I was reading Hosea. Do you ever get the feeling when somebody points out something wrong with you and they're right and you know they're right? I I don't know if that happens to most of you. It happens to me fairly regularly. I know a lot of people who will point out things that I need to work on. It's actually a blessing. But do you get that feeling at the first moment when that happens? What's the first thing you do? you, You say, oh, thank you very much for pointing out that sin in my life. I know that that's going to help me get closer to God and to help my relationships. That's not the way we react. The way I react is... Who the heck are you? Who are you to tell me this? (laughs) How how dare you? You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. And then just read verses 7 and 8 in Hosea 9. It says, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. This is what Hosea is saying to Israel. How does Israel respond to this? The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. (laughs) So, Hosea points out exactly what's wrong with the people of Israel and points out that God is loving and wants them back and that they only need to turn away from their sin and repent and come back to God and he would welcome them. And what's their reaction? You're crazy. I, I wish I could say Israel is alone in this, but I know that it's what happens in my own life. I find it so much easier to attack the, the messenger over, the, over dealing with the actual message. But it can get worse. If we embrace this, like any sin, it corrupts. Notice how it keeps going. Because of your iniquity and great hatred, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. So the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is in all his ways and hatred in the house of God. Allow me to translate. Hosea tells the truth. Hosea tells them what needs to happen. Hosea calls them to repentance and gives them the good news of God's willingness to take their repentance. And they hate him for it. Notice, it's not that they hate him naturally. It's not that they just dislike him. They dislike him specifically because He does what love requires and warns them. They honestly believe he doesn't like them while he's doing the most loving thing that was possible. The people of Israel are evil so they can't accept the prophecy that would call them to repentance so they attack the messenger. Hosea says that they hate them. He warns them of the danger to come and they hate him for it. And this has got an important lesson for us. Because of sin, sometimes what is most loving will be perceived by the one we love as hatred. I wish I could give you good news about that. I can't. It just is the fact. Sometimes, if you if you tell people about the ways that they are being corrupted sometimes they will be so corrupt that they will see that as hatred worse and this is the problem we could be the ones who are corrupted we need to be careful we might be the prophet we might be the people we don't know so this <laughs> This, gives us, uh, this should give us pause. I, I, I'm glad that everybody's kind of silent right now because that means you're thinking about this. Just remember this. Sometimes the people who are your critics are the people who love you the most. Sometimes when you are being loving and being critical of other people when you, need, when you feel you need to be, don't be surprised if they dislike you for it. That's how sin operates. That's what sin does. It corrupts our visions and our perceptions. Now, this means that sometimes we're going to have to balance what we love more. Do we love our relationships more than the person we love? Do we love people's perceptions of us more than our relationships with other people? Do we love our self-perception more than we love the truth of God that needs to work through our lives? You see, the Bible commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that doesn't say you have to love your relationships. It says you have to love people. It it says you have to love God. It doesn't say you have to love yourself. It says you do love yourself. You need to love your neighbor like that. It says you need to love God more than that. But be careful. Sin corrupts thinking and perceptions. And probably the worst. Do you remember that passage in the New Testament? We dealt with it lately when we did went through Easter. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. And he comes into Jerusalem. He crests the hill on the way in, on his last time in. And he says, Israel, or Jerusalem, O oh Jerusalem, if I could only gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing... Jesus told the truth to Jerusalem and he knew they would kill him for it. And he said it anyway. He went forward anyway. Hosea models real love. Jesus models real love because sin, sin is more than a bad idea. Sin corrupts your loves, it, can, it corrupts your desires, it corrupts your perceptions, and ultimately, sin kills. And that's the ultimate problem. Ultimately, the corruption that sin puts into our lives will lead us to death. Verses four to six. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners bread to them, who eat all of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in all their tents. I think skip down to verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves. As in the days of Gebeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. You remember the James passage I started it with? What's the last phrase in that James verse? When sin is fully grown. It brings forth death. The people here of Israel, because of their corruption, because of their evil, because the way they've turned from God and embraced things that God does not love, things that God hates, see, I'm even trying to minimize it myself, things that God hates, they will face punishment. God is punishing them. Now, let's be careful. The punishment sounds like a bad thing. We all believe punishment is bad. Does everyone here want to be punished today? Didn't think so. Nobody wants to be punished today. Nobody desires punishment unless you're a little weird in the head. Yet punishment is better than the alternative. You see, punishment now is better than eternal destruction. A friend of mine sent me this verse this morning when he was talk, when, we, when I was talking about this passage. This is from Jeremiah. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. It's Jeremiah thirty eleven. Now, Get the issue, the point here. God is saying to the people in Jeremiah, I punish you because I love you. I punish you because I desire that you would turn back from your evil and live. Because sin will kill you. And so I will set it so that the sin will no longer be valuable to you. I will make it so that you will turn away from your sin I will punish you that you might be saved because the other option is full destruction. In verse 9 it talks about the sin of Gabeah. Do you know who, where Gabeah is? It's mentioned in another part of the Bible. Not a very nice part of the Bible actually. It's the tail end of Judges. If you read Judges it's one of those books whereby the people of Israel start off pretty okay and then everybody does everything, what they view in their own, own, they do whatever is right in their own eyes. And then God sends them a judge and the judge saves them and they get into a, a bit of a, uh, a plateau and then they start doing whatever they feel like doing. And then God saves them and they keep going. But the circle is keeping on going down and down and down until ultimately you get to the situation in Gabea. And I'm not going to go, get too deep into this because it's kind of gross, but let's just say the people of Benjamin at Gebeah did things that got Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. The things that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah before they could do it, Gebeah of Benjamin did. That's how corrupt they had become. And because of it, Gebeah was destroyed. Sin is not a laughing matter. It's not a minor thing. Friends, sin ultimately leads to death. It will destroy us if we embrace it. So this is not a very nice message. But I told you that there was a tension in prophets, right? I told you that. I told you there's a tension between the love of God and the justice of God, right? Did I tell you that that's a prophetic tension? That's a tension that God wants us to see because this is a tension he's going to deal with. Right now, if you've heard the majority of my message, if it's landed as I pray it has, you can say with Paul right now, "Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" Because that verse, Romans 7:24, continues into Romans 7:25. "Thanks be to God." through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Friends, God has answered the question. If you feel the weight of sin in your life, if you feel the way that sin is working in you, and yes, believers, even as sin corrupts us now, if we embrace it, as we try to wage war against it, as we sometimes win and sometimes lose in our battle against sin, know this, God has already answered the question of your wretchedness. He has sent his son Jesus in whom we have complete righteousness, in whom we have salvation, not so that we can simply embrace sin forever, but so that we can be redeemed and brought to fate, to life with God ultimately. This is why I have three applications for this passage. And application one is probably the most important and the other two applications will make absolutely no sense if you don't follow this one. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not put your faith in yourselves. Don't put your faith in your righteousness. Don't put your faith in your ability to follow the laws of God. You don't have that ability. Don't put your faith in the fact that you've got a good heart. You don't. Sorry to break that to you. You can hate me for that later. But you don't you have the same wickedness we all do. So don't put your faith in that. Put your faith in the Christ who saves us despite that. Put your faith in the righteousness of the righteous life he lived that we couldn't. Put your faith for salvation before God in Christ 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, brothers and sisters who know Jesus, turn again to Jesus and trust in him. Those of you who do not know Jesus now, turn to Jesus and trust in him. Return from your wickedness and live. But that was application one. There's a second application that comes directly from it. And again, one of these words that I'm not supposed to say in a 21st century pulpit. Repent. Yeah, it's actually a little heavy to say the word, but I have to say it, so I'll say it again. Repent. By repentance, I don't mean screw up your good, good desires and try to muscle your way through doing the right stuff. I mean throw yourself on the mercy of God and, desi- and by God's grace receive the desire that he has given you and use that to put to death the deeds of the flesh. John Owen puts it fairly well. This is from The Mortification of Sin, uh, part one, chapter two. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And this is on t-shirts all over the place. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with Him, will not excuse you from this work. In fact, just to add on to John Owen, because, you know, like I can, I'm smarter than John Owen. In fact, it's because we're quickened in Christ, because we see the all surpassing value of our good and holy God, that we have the necessary motive, heart, desire for the results of this work. It's because of Christ we can seek after him. It does not mean that we ignore our sin. Instead, we fight to press into Christ more each day because as part of his blessed work, he has given us freedom from sin. Friends, it's tragic for us as Christians to have the freedom to be holy and yet wallow in our sin. The Lord God has designed us by His Spirit, to reflect the glory of God to the nations around us. We are designed to be images of the one true holy God. And so often we wallow in sin instead. Freedom is granted us. So brothers, sisters, turn from our sin. When you see me in sin, call me to turn from my sin That we might be holy, a people called of God. Sin seeks to keep us hobbled in our union with Christ. We don't need to stay hobbled in our time with Christ, especially since it is safe to bring your sins to God. He has paid all of the recompense for your sins. There is nothing in God's eyes that would make you make him cast you out. Your sin is not adequate to defeat the all-surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Your sins may kill you. Your sins did kill Christ, but he rose again on the 3rd day and you are saved because of it. There is nothing that should keep us from coming to God in repentance. This is actually glorious. Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I'm not going to be gender inclusive because I actually mean full heirs and Ladies, you are in fact full heirs of Christ if you are in Christ. This isn't, it's gender inclusive, but the words are strange. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may all also be glorified with him. Friends, family, we need to do the hard work of repenting daily, hourly, minutely if necessary. Christ is ready with open arms. He's paid for our sins completely. So all that is left for us is to repent as often as we sin. We just need to stand up one more time than we fall. By God's grace, this warfare will end. There will come a day when there will be no more sin in our lives. By his grace, we will be free of sin, but we need to be waging the warfare now. Because even as sin corrupts, even more so, Christ redeems I don't have time to get into what redemption means as opposed to mere forgiveness. Let's just say, God doesn't just sweep your sin under the rug. Friends, you will be made perfect if you are in Christ. He is building us from one version of glory to the next. There is a great gift offered us. But application three. And this is just a living thing and this comes from the way that we see Hosea operating. We need to be humble in obedience. Love God, love the truth of God and love others. Love people more than you love their affirmation of you. Love them more than you love adulation. Love them more than you love a good reputation. All those things are good but none of those things are ultimate. Love God and people. And let that love, that love you develop for God, that love that's given us by the Holy Spirit, let that love give you courage. Both the courage to stand for the truth in the world that doesn't love God, but also the courage to face the sin in your own life when your critics come at you and say things about you, about whether or not you're a hypocrite or whether you've done the wrong thing, take that. Have the courage to face the criticisms, to find out by the word of God and by prayer which parts of that are correct, and then repent. Criticisms are not there to defeat you. They're there to perfect you. And insofar as there are false accusations as happen all the time, as it happened to Hosea, rejoice that the Lord God has counted you worthy to suffer according to the name. As with the prophets, we need to be willing to bear the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune if it is for the sake of loving God and loving others. Live for the glory of God and the good of others. And to do that, love them, not in the anemic way that the world talks about love, where they just want you to have good feelings about people. We need to love in the real deep way that Christ loved us, desiring our good ultimately, not merely our happiness immediately. And you never know if you're the prophet of the people, so be humble. Be ready to face the people who criticize you and recognize they might be right. I mean, I know I'm pretty handsome and intelligent and all that kind of stuff, but I'm pretty sure that I've done wrong things. And honestly, most of you in this congregation have pointed out those wrong things I've done from time to time, and by God's grace, I'm repenting. Because God does love us. And he loved us well. He provides an end to sin and a change to our desires. He promises a new heart, the ability to be free from sin and follow him. Accept the gift of his son today, especially now as we turn to communion. Let us pray. Lord God, you are far better than we deserve, you're far better than we know. I pray that by your grace you would open our eyes to your glory today so that we might love you well and seek after you in everything we do. This we pray in Jesus' name.